welcome back to hey great shot you're listening to part two of my best of the decade conversation with jonathan kelly looking at the biggest storylines results and controversies from the 2010s in american tennis in part one of our conversation jonathan and i focused on the women's side in particular serena venus and sloan and how their performances defined a decade of american women's tennis for uh, for serena i should say that she put forward her best decade of tennis at starting at the age of 28 winning 12 grand slams in the 20 tens the most of any 10-year span she's played thus far in her career or I should say of any controlled 10-year span you know 2010s 2000s etc uh that that's so tremendously impressive when we go in depth on that on Venus playing through an entire decade in her 30s and how she looked as well as the first 10 years of Sloan and why that uh you know her ability to thrive but also the ups and downs you know is also a big narrative in talking about uh 2010s American women's tennis in today's podcast we're going to focus a little bit on the men this time uh in particular we are going to talk about uh the biggest storylines such as the men's silver generation the generation following Sampras Agassi, uh, the golden generation of Sampras, Agassi, Chang, and Courier, that generation being Roddick, Blake, Marty Fish, Taylor Dent, Robbie Ginepri, etc., how they retired this decade and what the final storyline is on their careers. You know, for Andy Roddick in particular, he wins the one grand slam, but outside of that, uh, none of the other guys even make a slam final. Marty Fish cracks the top 10, James Blake cracked the top 10, but, you know, we talk about them and why... uh, you know, their how they they following up the gold generation, how the generation that followed them throughout this twenty tens, you know, that they failed up to live up to the silver generation that really spoke to the early years of the twenty tens and why they were such a struggle for fans of American men's tennis. We talk about that. We also uh talk about the fact that no men made slam finals from the US for the first decade in tennis history. A men's slam singles final, I should specify. Uh, in particular, we talk about the guys who came closest in John Isner, Jack Sock, both Masters champions this decade. Uh, we also talk about 2017 and you know all of the ups and downs of that season, as well as the youth movement, both the 2014-2015 Kalamazoo stretch that was so uh, significant, 2013-2014-2015, excuse me, that was so significant to our current state of tennis. You know, in those Kalamazoo's, we saw guys like Tiafo, Fritz, Opelka, Mo, uh, Stefan Kozlov, Noah Rubin, Ernesto. Escobedo, Alex Rybakov, so many of the young guys who we will be watching play in the 2020s all took center stage at that Kalamazoo and how significant that moment, that event was in the course of American tennis history. We also talk about 2019 and how many uh, you know significant achievements there were, uh, not only from that Opelka, Fritz, Tommy Paul, uh, Francis Tiafo cohort, but also on the women's side. I mean, Sophia Kennan, Amanda Nisimova, Coco Goff just from this year. Obviously, what Cece Bellis did earlier in the decade as well. There's so many talented young Americans for us as fans to be uh, excited about. And that was part of the fun of this exercise because as depressing as the early 2010s was, things got better and better as the decade progressed. And that's something you will really notice Jonathan and I harping on throughout this part of the episode. But with that in mind, enjoy. Enjoy uh, part two of my conversation with Jonathan Kelly. To transition to our next topic, if I may, people who will no longer 
uh, be playing in the 2020s as they have moved on to bigger and better things in their lives. Uh, the men's silver generation, uh, the generation that followed, obviously, the Sampras, Agassi, Courier, Chang crowd. That consists of Roddick, Fish, Blake, Taylor Dent, that crew. Uh, their careers came to an end this decade, and that's where we want to start our discussion of the men's side. By the way, in terms of the over-under, which is set at two hours, we are we're we're veering towards the over right now. So we may, you know, we'll try and I don't know if we want to. Eh, I don't care how long we go. Don't don't sacrifice the integrity of the conversation. But um, f- talking about the silver generation, because a lot can be made of American tennis on the men's side over these past 10 years. The biggest storyline of which we will talk about is obviously the no men's slam finals. But coming into, you know, that no one expected a Sampras, or maybe people did, but that's irrational of them to have expected Sampras, Courier, Agassi, Chang-like generations out of each and every American class. But you look at the silver generation, only one Grand Slam amongst all of them. That's obviously Andy Roddick's title, which came so early on. Uh, he's also the only of that group, I believe, to make a Grand Slam final, in, at least in singles. Um, looking back at this silver generation, what stands out to you about them, of the way their careers finish? What do you think the narrative will be about them? Um, well, first of all, I think that the the narrative, other than Andy Roddick, is is a little is going to be a little bit um, overlooked or overshadowed by the success of the that the greatest generation had, um, and the you know American tennis had people like Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe and Arthur Ashe, but um, I look back and the number of Grand Slam titles won by American men was by far the highest in the 1990s. The they won 21 titles in the 1990s versus uh, only 12 in the 80s, 12 in the 70s, only two in the 60s. So the the level, you know, we have this idea of American tennis as having been great up until 2000, and then and then sort of dropping off a cliff. But the truth is that. Really, it, it kind of reached this, uh, even though it wasn't the most popular sport in the 90s, it, it reached its zenith in the 1990s with just a few players, you know, Sampras, Agassi, um, Courier, Chang, and, and a couple other players really, now Washington, you know, did things that no other country has been able to do. What Roddick and the end of Sampras' career, the tail end of Agassi's career, that was a lot, and they got a lot of for it. And uh, they were still able to have a, a really solid decade in the in the 2010s between them. And so when I look back at the at the, uh, I'm sorry, in the 2000s, when I look back at the 2010s for that generation, what I see is a lot of careers sort of um, ending a little earlier than uh, they maybe should have. And part of that was because of injury. Part of that is because, you know, it was just sort of standard to retire in your early 30s as opposed to now where it's definitely things are going a lot longer. Um, but I just wanted to include this as a storyline because they had a really, really good generation with multiple people in the top 10. Marty Fish uh, getting to the top 10 in that period of time. Um James Blake, even though his, um, he didn't play very much in this decade, he was still still around. And um, 
I just wish they'd all been able to have sort of the appreciation of, of what they were able to accomplish in their careers that uh, some other some other generations have had. Yeah, I mean, it's not a sad thing. It's just we talked about Serena and Venus earlier, and one of the crazy things, Andy Roddick right now is 37. I mean, he's right. younger than Serena and Venus, and yep. so you're, you're and absolutely— yeah, and Rod, and so you talk about a guy like Marty Fish. He's also 37 years old. Taylor Dent, 38. James Blake, a little bit older, 39. Um, yep. But like, yeah, all of these guys, they they were their careers had ended by you know 2014, 2015. Really, they you know maybe if not before that, and it wasn't the storybook ending we may have loved. Although it feels like Andy Roddick, he got a Masters title this decade. He went out, I think, in the fashion he would have liked. He still had a little tennis left in him had he wanted to, but I think he was just happy to move. I, I, I'm, I think I, is it fair to say we are satisfied with how his career ended? Yeah. I mean, I think he's probably satisfied with how his career ended, but as the best player um, of the previous five years or seven years for Americans and given that so many of his peers were able to play on I and given that I feel like his game style with with the serve that he had you know could have survived up until you know for a few more years I'm not really satisfied you know everybody retires when they want to hopefully and I feel like he did retire when he wanted to but um yeah part of me feels like there was just a little bit of a lost opportunity to maybe get to another mass or another major quarterfinal another major semifinal like he he was he was being outshadowed by uh i remember i remember clearly like there was a a short short window of time where he and novak Djokovic, even though there was a uh several year difference like were about as good as each other and i feel like when when Djokovic clearly became a better player than him and, and murray as well he sort of felt like oh maybe this isn't this isn't for me anymore but those two ended up being all-time greats you know he still was as good as uh plenty of i think he could still compete with the burdiches and the um the burdicks and the and the chilliches and um even the del potros i feel like he he could have extended that career a little while longer and i think it might have been a little bit better for american men's tennis if he if he had you know continue to play into his early 30s yeah it, it would have been nice to see but that being said uh, i mean andy roddick is the only grand slam champion of the group and with all due respect to guys like james blake and the robbie janapris the michael russells of the world it really didn't feel like any of the other guys left any slam titles on the table. And that's a testament to how good Federer's been, how good Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, all of those guys are. I mean, it's not just the American tennis players on the men's side who felt that uh, era who experienced that inability to finish, right? All The entire nation of, of uh, French men's tennis felt that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Australia as well. So it's like, it's not just us. Everyone was going through it. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think you look back at this generation – you look at what they did after them. I mean, how many of these guys cite Andy Roddick as their favorite players of the Fritz Opelka uh, generation? James Blake, his contributions to American tennis, and he's running the Miami tournament now, have been endless. Taylor Dent had a brief coaching stint with Jared Donaldson. He's been coaching a bunch of the guys. Michael Russell as well. So I think that's also one of the narratives that comes out of the silver generation is their effect on the younger guys. Yeah. And I think that, that that's 
you know, given that they failed where previous generations had succeeded. Not that they failed. Again, I'm not trying to diminish them as a group, but they didn't live up to the previous generation. They, If anyone has the knowledge, the ins and outs, how many of these players have we seen love going to hit with Andy Roddick in Texas? Uh, they seem willing to help get this next generation and help rebuild, rebuild the wrong world, reload American tennis, get it to a place where it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I also want to put a brief like shout out to Marty Fish, who um, was one of the first athletes that I know of to actually talk about his anxiety issues and how he was able to come back from that being as open and honest as he was about how that affected him at the highest when he when he was at the pinnacle of his sport. I think he kind of broke some ground for for professional athletes generally, where he took some of the stigma out of mental health issues and um some of the shame associated with it and was just like hey this is what happened to me this is who i am and and now you're seeing more athletes coming to coming open being open about that and and coming to terms with that and acknowledging and accepting that and i think that's been really i think that was really powerful and i i just wanted to give a shout out to that yeah i I really appreciate that you did because absolutely that's going to be one of the signature uh hopefully the biggest improvements of the 2020s if 2010s it was the physicality the nutrition the way you train for the game that are the train for matches if that's what changed the most hopefully 2020s will be the stigmas attached to the game uh to the matches the effects mentally that'll be the next leap we make and marty fish is on the forefront of that we saw him coaching the, the davis cup team this past week the pk cup whatever you want to call it um and i won't even open that can of worms with you Jonathan, <laughs> but i promise um but yeah i i think that you know their effect on the next generation will be so critical to that generation's success. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And that gets us into our next conversation topic, which is that next generation of Americans who uh, we saw come on so strongly in the last couple of years of the decade. In the middle of the decade, they were, you know, Kozlov made an Australian Open junior uh, final, and that sort of opened the floodgates with, you know, Tiafo rising up to top five, Michael Moe top five, Tommy Paul, Fritz Opelka, all getting junior slam champions. Uh, Noah Rubin, I should throw him in there as well, also a junior Wimbledon champion, his title, a big moment when he beat Kozlov in the final. And one of the definitive moments, one of the definitive storylines of the decade on the men's side was, as we mentioned, finding who was going to replace that silver generation. Were we going to ever find another American men's tennis uh, champion after, what, it's been now 16 years, and we still haven't had anyone since Andy Roddick did it all the way back at that 2003 U.S. Open. So uh, one of the— I just, oh, have this, I just have this like vision of you— in a gif going back to the U S open, um, <laughs> in the year, you know, 2070, whatever, or, you know, 2090 something. And just being like, it's been 84 years. You're going to be <laughs> that Titanic woman. I'll be long gone, but you'll be the Titanic woman. Like, I'll be oh. like, and in 2022, when they outlawed seven footers in the game, they took <laughs> it from Riley. They took it from him. Um, yeah, I, I could see that as well. But one of the moments, and again, I, I said it off the top of this podcast, your coverage of uh 
2010s tennis of the American scene has been so instrumental in following it. Another person I have to shout out before we do this topic, uh, Colette Lewis, of course, of Zoo Tennis. Who, if you if you want to learn anything about the American junior scene, who's up and coming, you follow her work. Uh, all of her work in my childhood. And again, to be clear, listeners, I was born in 95, so this current generation is my generation. If this past one was the silver generation, we are now the Gruskin generation. I'm sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> Um, but these were the, you know, 2013, 2014, I'm turning 18, nine, uh, you know, 19 years old. It's, I'm becoming an adult. I'm like, who's going to rise with me? And it yep. all came to a head at that 2014 Kalamazoo, which set off really a run of two years at Kalamazoo. I, I know we said 2014 was going to be the storyline here, but I want to talk both. a little bit about 2015 yeah. as well, because you're right. This was the, you know. We didn't do a storyline about the, uh, I'll call him affectionately, the Evan King, Ray Sarmiento, Dennis Kudla generation. We will talk about Sock and Isner in a little bit. Um, But this crop, this group that has uh, three junior slams amongst them, a couple finals, extra appearances as well. Uh, this was a moment when I feel like American tennis, male tennis fans became excited again, was watching this group compete at the international stage and then together at Kalamazoo. Exactly. And, you know, I'm, I'm a contemporary of the silver generation. So, or no, I'm sorry, the greatest generation. Ah, God. <laughs> oh Lord. Uh, so, you know, I was born around the same time that, that, uh, that Pete, I'm a little bit younger than Pete Sampras, but not much, but. You know, so me and my teens watching them become like what would become legends. Uh, you know, back then we had a newspaper or magazines to go off of and some some TV. But uh, I didn't even have cable when I was in high school. I was unusual in that regard, you know, but I was still able to sort of follow through that through my college years, through my early post-college years, follow that generation. So you're you're not going to have the, the benefit of that. You're not going to have you know, probably 20 Grand Slam titles among these kids. But you're, this is the first time that we've seen this kind of a, a cadre uh, of young and exciting people, um, you know, since the, the Silver Generation and before that, since the Greatest Generation. And it, it just added some electricity to, um, to American men's tennis following them, like, finding out how they do in the futures and then, you know, watch them dominate at that level and then starting to watch them not quite dominate, but get to the, uh, you know, watching them dominate at the junior level and then starting to win challengers and now starting to make their, their presence known at, uh, at the ATP level. And yeah, it all sort of came together for the first time at the 2014 and then 2015 Kalamazoo, USTA boys national titles. And I just want to list who was at that 2014 because I Boy, think before yeah, you but, do that, now, sorry to steal your thunder. Will you just because we, again, this is why I love working with you because we think the same way. Start with the quarterfinals. Uh, I assume you're just looking at the draw. Um, I want you, you to correctly. Okay. You're <laughs> just going off. Okay. So when you say a name, I want to let me say what their current world ranking is. Okay. So, yeah, we'll go off the, the quarterfinals uh, for 2014. Um, we had – oh, God. Top seed <laughs> – I'm sorry. Uh, top seed 
was Jared Donaldson. Who lost in the round of six? No, nope, quarterfinals. He won, but obviously we know him. Top 100 reached, I believe, career high number 51, 50 in the world. Uh, right now, out with injury. Colin Altamirano. Number five seed who knocked off Donaldson. Obviously play, had a prolific career winning three NCAA titles at the University of Virginia. Currently sits at world number 369. Stefan Kozlov. Don't get my heart going. We all know the Kozlov story. I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little bit. Child prodigy, best 13-year-old ever. Uh, currently world number 420. Uh, Taylor Fritz. Mm, the illustrious Taylor Fritz, world junior champion and the year ITF junior number one grand, junior grand slam champion, now ATP title champion, current number two American at world number 32. Francis Tiafo. Mm, Francis Tiafo, world number 47, youngest Orange Bowl champion of all time. Noah Rubin. Noah Rubin, host of a fellow Tennis Channel Podcast Network podcast, uh, uh, Beyond the Ra- not Beyond the Racket, is his enterprise as well, but the, the Cation cast, the coffee cast with Cation and Rubin, uh, we all know him, currently sitting at world number 212. Michael Moe. Michael Moe, recent challenger winner in Knoxville, world number 219. Kalamazoo champion 2016, I should mention. And Ernesto Escobedo. Ah, Ernesto, world number 226, his comeback over that last half of the year, one of the best parts of the end of the 2019 season. So, yeah, this group was stacked. So, also in that tournament were uh, Riley Opelka and Tommy Tommy Paul lost first round, I believe, to Adrian Hamdani. (laughs) Random. Um, (laughs) But, so, all together in that tournament, there were seven different guys who now the age at 24 or younger have reached the top 100 which is at their age you know most of them didn't go to college but at their age is one of the best zoo uh you know kalamazoo crowds ever like no most most uh kalamazoo lineups would be lucky to have four um top 100 players at any point in their career we've already had seven players at the top 100 and two others who have hit the top 125 in Noah Rubin and Stefan Kozlov um it's it's just it's in it's a really impressive and you know they they're not all playing at their peak right now Jared Donaldson has been out with injury um Stefan Kozlov has, has maybe starting to make a, a little bit move of a move back, Escobedo and Ruben aren't at their career highs, but all of them have shown top 150 potential. And usually when you hit the top 150, by the time you're 22 years old, you have a decent shot at, at some point in your career hitting the top 100. So there's nothing to say that we couldn't get, you know, two or three more top 100 players out of that group. Um, and it also included, uh, Alex Rybakov, who I think still has a lot of upside in his professional career. Mm-hmm. Um, and guys, uh, guys, you didn't mention who are that age, J.J. Wolf, Max Crossy. One of my favorite Twitter stats of yours that I'm sad isn't there is, you know, now guys 1996 or later who have won challenger titles. Seven of the eight 2014 quarterfinalists have won challenger titles. Yeah. I mean, as yeah, you just don't see that. As have Opelka and Paul. And yep. J.J. Wolf now. Uh, who was in the the 16s, but didn't? I don't think he played the 18s, or he played the mm-hmm. 16s the next year. So, and we go into 2015. Uh, Donaldson wasn't there. Um, 
Escobedo wasn't there. Noah Rubin wasn't there. Colin Altamirano wasn't there. But you still had Michael Moe. And you'd had so many players who had already won junior majors by the time that they showed up or had gotten to junior major finals or, or um, been in the top five among juniors between Tiapo, Kozlov, Moe, Fritz, Opelka, and Paul. It was just stacked. It wasn't a very exciting tournament. We didn't have the fifth set masterpiece that we had the year before. I don't think 2015 in 2015. No, no we no, did no, have no, no. 2015 was the five set masterpiece. That's right. I'm sorry. It was yeah. unexciting until the, the, the final, right? So my counter to that, and I was at both 2014 and 2015 because I'm a huge nerd. Um, but yeah, you're right. You replace, uh, Ruben with Opelka. You replace Donaldson with Paul, you know, Rybakov, Edward, Eduardo Nava, who's had a bunch of injuries, really the, the only guy in this who hasn't made big news on the pro circuit, although his brother certainly has. Mm-hmm. Um, but you talk about this group and yeah, it was just coming into that 2015, uh, Kalamazoo, Opelka had won junior Wimbledon. Tommy Paul had beaten Taylor Fritz in the junior French, uh, final. Tiafa was the world junior number three around that time. Kozlov had made two junior slam finals. I think he had made a challenger final by that point, if not that 250 in the Netherlands on the grass. Uh, so he was coming in in top form. I mean, Michael Moe as well, Taylor Fritz ended that year as the number one junior in the world. As good as 2014 was, and it's important you include Donaldson, Altamirano, Noah Rubin in that group because the 96s were the ones who opened the floodgates. But it, I think 2015... That was the it, all peaking with right. that Tiafo knocks off Kozlov five set match final. You're like this generation is real, right? I guess I, uh, what I meant to say was that the quarterfinal rounds and the semifinal rounds didn't quite live up to their hype. Like we thought we might see a bunch of all time classics. It was uh, it ended up being Fritz beating Mo two six three, Kozlov three and two over Nava. Tommy Paul, 6-3, over Rybakov. Tiafo 4-6 over Opelka. Although I will say the single best straight set uh, result I've ever seen, the best Kalamazoo match I've ever seen, was Tommy Paul's round of 16 win over Oliver Crawford, 7-6-6-2. To me, it was literally Crawford was just a younger clone of Tommy Paul. It was uh-huh. such solid tennis. I, that's yeah. when I fell in love with Crawford. Yeah. He's got some upside too. He's uh, He's been having some... Um some a couple of decent wins at the futures futures yeah. level and i think brandon holt the 22 seed in this tournament a vassal kirkoff a guy we both love 28 yep. seed i mean it's ridiculous yeah uh and liam caruana was in that tournament mm-hmm. too who is no longer playing for the united states but who uh had a nice win over over Tiafo right at the uh at milan a couple of years ago mm-hmm. yeah, um, on with is another really talented player who uh, i think still has some upside Gianni Ross, uh, yeah, um, McNally, uh, Wolf were all there in 2015. There's a even Alex Ledbedev, who isn't going to probably ever crack the top 100. I say that lovingly, but great player at Notre Dame, huge game. Mm-hmm. He made the round of 32 here before losing to Tiafo four and four. Yep, yeah, it was just those those two years back to back were were really a golden time, and there have been great players to come through Kalamazoo before and after, but. Um, you know, it could go down for a long time as being the the high point of American junior, you know, that age tennis. Just a really exciting um, thing to come. And I, I'll say that a, a storyline from the last few years that is a little bit of a, a downer is how many 
uh, young guys have passed them so far in the pros who are their contemporaries. Like, given how high they all were as juniors, um, to see so many different guys younger than them, you know, be able to beat them sometimes easily. Uh, and 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 you, you see guys like Tsitsipas and, and uh, Zverev winning year-end championships. Orange Bowl final, Kozlov beats Tsitsipas. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so they haven't really been able to, to maintain that. We've talked about, we talked about this last year, I think, uh, about how that's been a little bit, bit of a disappointing. They're still young. They're still the entire 2020s left to go, and I think that we'll still see, you know, none of these, most of these guys aren't at their career-high rankings that they'll end up being. Um, so there's, there's still plenty of highlights to go, but, uh, as complete as these players are compared to some of their, their, you know, their like overall strengths, you can say, you know, um, Opelka is, uh, in some ways a better Isner. You can say that, uh, Tommy Paul is in some ways a, a better, or Taylor Fritz is in some ways a better Sam Query. You know, they're more well-rounded in their games. They're better. Tommy at- Paul is a taller Michael Russell. Well, <laughs> or, you know, uh, he's as athletic as a, as a Jack Sock, maybe not with the forehand, but, you know, with a, a better backhand, you know. So, yeah. in a lot of ways, more complete players, but still, or maybe Tiafos are better uh, Jack Sock. I don't know, but um, still have holes in their games compared to all of these Europeans and, and Canadians and Australians who are who are already a little bit ahead of them and who are on a trajectory that's going to surpass them. So um, are we going to see at least one top 10 player out of this? Yes. Are we going to see multiple top five players out of this? I, I don't, I don't, I'm not really as optimistic as I was five years ago, but you know, if nothing else, I, I did end up winning that bet. Thanks to, to uh, Francis Siafo. Uh, <laughs> and uh, for that, I'll, I'll be eternally grateful for this generation. Yeah, and you you may argue, uh, and, and you know, for the record, your point on the other people catching in—that's a larger question of 2020 preview. And I think that's something we'll cover not on this Great Shot podcast because if we do, it will go seven hours. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. And you look at like the boxes they've checked thus far for Opelka. That win over Stan at Wimbledon it sort of in, encapsulates what he could be. For Fritz, the run he's had at the 250 level post Wimbledon and right before Wimbledon when he won an event there, just the serving, the way he can dominate with that, the way you have to really be a fantastic player to beat him because his floor is just so high. Um but then you wonder about his athletic limitation. I mean, you saw him in the Labor Cup. He's great. But, yeah, there's still things you worry about. Tommy Paul, it's a health thing. Mackie McDonald had some moments as well. Also has got some health issues. And there are just a lot of good players out there. Like, it's hard. It really is hard because of how many talented uh, players there are right now in terms of young guys on the ATP and, honestly, WTA tours. Uh, it's hard to break through. So, yeah, you do wonder, uh, is there a Grand Slam champion in this group? But... To, and this might be my hottest take of the podcast, one could argue as we get into our next line that the junior slams these guys were able to win, the the thought of them succeeding at a future point, that, that brief moment of optimism they provided in Kalamazoo, that's the highlight of the decade on an ATP side where ultimately maybe the biggest storyline is there were no American men's slam champions. Yeah, I, it, it for me personally, and this is just a personal thing, it it provided like a focal point for men's tennis for 
you know, outside of the big four um, to like, like look up stats and like uh, post stats and, and start tracking and, and watching, you know, it helped. I think those guys helped bring Mike Cation to the prominence that he's at now because so many matches involving so many of these guys were just so thrilling, such good tennis, like, um, and, you know, they all seem to be not, you know, which is not something you can always say about um, past iterations of American tennis. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I like they they seem to be a very likable crew. They seem to be uh very collab or collaborative. They seem to want to push one another to get to that next level. Uh but you you have to you know, to transition again about the no men's slams uh titles, it's not only that there were no titles, there were no finals. I mean there's no it's like you're you're grasping at straws, right? Because uh as you know, a player like John Isner, who I guess we will talk about it. Oh, I guess. Whole, well, I guess let's just do this simultaneously. Our other storyline: a guy like John Isner, who came as close as any American um, outside of Sam Query. Better. Um, he came closer than Sam to winning. Uh, yeah, well, did anyone win in that fifth set at Wimbledon? I don't know. Um, but I guess my, the point is, you, you look at that and. That's the pervasive storyline. As good as our best player of the decade, John Isner, was, he really didn't come that close, nor did any American man, to winning a Grand Slam title. Uh, no, I think he, he actually came pretty close at, at, uh, at Wimbledon. Um, okay, give the case. Well, uh, you're, you're uh, challenging me. This was, what, 2018? Sorry. Yeah, no, this, this honestly could have been tw- – do you know the Isner-Mahout match was 2010? Yep, I sure do. I looked that up. Um, yeah. okay. So the, the the case for, for Isner is that um, uh, it was it was 2018, right? Sorry, my year mm-hmm. with years. So he, uh, he was within a game or a couple of games of beating the finalists. He was 26-24 in the fifth against Kevin Anderson. And uh, – Anderson was uh, what was it? Sorry, what was the final? The final score? I want to say it's twenty six twenty four, right? Yeah, and then um, you know he he ended up getting crushed by Djokovic, but I think Isner is a better uh, has a better chance of holding serve against Djokovic, and he very well could have taken a, a couple of sets off of Djokovic in the final. Not not likely that he would have, but I think. Um, that was definitely the best shot of any American at any major in the 2010s of winning. And I think he was, he was closer than you want to acknowledge right now. He was uh, <laughs> away from a, a final that would have been at least, um, uh, at least competitive, I think. Yeah. I mean, look, him on grass, that serve, you're right. Every match he plays is competitive. Um, I'm just so bitter about that. We are doing, we're going to do a best matches of the decade podcast in a little bit, uh, in a couple of weeks, but, or well, you're, maybe it might even be tomorrow. Um, but I'm not sure when it will be released. Yeah, exactly. If this one ever ends. Um, but yeah, it, certainly he came closest, but you know, you've texted me this context and you've tweeted out this context throughout the decade. Um, how significant is it that there was not a single American man to make the slam singles final in the 40 attempts they had this decade? Um, it, it's, it's very, it's extremely significant because the slams are where people, you know, the mainstream 
tennis public focuses the, their most of their attention, um, where players start making their uh, their legend, you know, their cases for their career and how great their career was. Um, making the Slam final is is part of that, and not making the Slam final is uh, is a real detriment to any given player. Great, you know, really good players overall legacy and um they they didn't do that and like we said they only made two semifinals so it wasn't even getting to the final weekend they uh they just didn't have they were never able to put it together um any of them except for the remarkable sam query you know run at wimbledon which i'm sure is a uh, bittersweet for you given that he uh we beat but um <laughs> yeah i think it's 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 just kind of sad and it, it allows people to write off American men's tennis is not, um, not competitive. Um, and it's in the shadow of, of decades like the 1990s and the 1980s and the 1970s, where they definitely were competitive and you become, you worry that it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy and that American men's tennis is just going to kind of fall off the map entirely. Um, it hasn't happened and there's, there's, Plenty of signs of life, but um, it's just, it's, uh, you know, and we also have to remember that the United States isn't the only country not to make a slam final, like, um, and certainly not the only country not to win a slam on the men's side. No country outside of Europe had a slam champion, and only a couple had slam finalists in in the decade. What, Nishikori and Del Potro, right? So... Uh, you can't, you can't ju- really the story of the 2010s and the last 15 plus years of men's tennis has been Europe and how dominating the one continent has been. Um, and uh, and Medvedev. Just- I didn't want to correct you, but I, I feel the need. No, Medvedev. Russia is part of Europe. Yeah, there you go. This is that. Do we want to do this? No, I mean they they play. <laughs> let's just say they play in the in the European Championships, right? The sure, championships, true. So they, they consider themselves part of Europe, um, and they're trying to become big, a bigger part of Europe. But I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, all right, yeah, yeah, you're right. That was good enough. We don't have to get more specific. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, I think it's it's significant. It's depressing. If you're an American men's tennis fan, it's hard to, like, show your face in public or admit to it at a bar. Uh, the conversations that you're going to have where you're trying to defend American men's tennis are going to be filled up with a lot of mockery and uh, shame. But, um uh, yeah, I think you have to. When you look back at the 2010s, it's the thing that stands out the most. That uh, we had some, a few highlights here and there, some interesting matches, some competitive men's players, but ultimately, uh, the tennis landscape would not have looked much different if there had been no American men playing tennis. Sure. And the one guy who probably made the biggest impact, a guy who has finished every season this decade inside of the top 20. Uh, John Isner, who is our next storyline we want to talk about, and we talked about him a little bit with that semifinal performance, but, uh, you know, him and Query, uh, probably the two best singles performer, we'll get to our list a little bit, but you look at John Isner's career in context, and, you know, he's kind of in between that next-gen crew and the silver generation, but, again, over the past 10 years, I'll read his career, uh, his year on finishes, he went 19, 18, 14, 14, 19, 11, 19, 17, number 10 last season, number 19 in 2019, obviously the biggest moments for him, him and Roddick, the only Americans to win Masters titles this decade, uh, Isner's 
coming over Zverev in the 2018 Miami Finals. He also made the final again this year in Miami. He's had a bunch of success at the Masters level, but in terms of at the Slams, only two quarterfinals, the 2011 and 2018 U.S. Opens, as well as that semifinal at the 2018 Wimbledon. Look, he brought Jack Fox's Masters title. Uh oh, Paris Masters. Does if you win in Paris and no one hears you, did it really happen? Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. You're you're correct. I am wrong. Um, but I'm also correct about Russia, and you are wrong. So we'll call us even. No, um, but. <laughs> Uh, do you know, uh, never mind. That was the Thanksgiving debate, only it was just like a random September Tuesday that I had with my parents. Because I think it was based off of another conversation. I was like, does Medvedev – no, this is a this is a Russian result. And then he was like, no, it's European, Alex. Um, but that's a story for another time. But yes, so John Isner. And see, this is the story of John Isner. So you start talking about him and inevitably you end up talking about something else. Because as, as – Different as it was to watch John Isner play, that's the word we'll go with. Seven feet tall, the bomb serve, a lot of tie breaks, a lot of short points. You knew what you were going to get. You know, you can watch one, two games of Isner, and it's going to be a lot of that the whole match. You can get a nice summary. Um, He is still one of the storylines of this decade for American men's tennis because even though we weren't great— his presence, him and maybe the Bryan brothers as well on the men's side, at least gave us plausibility. Yeah, right. Yeah. He, I mean, just what you said, the year in finishes, I think is one of the more remarkable statistics. Finishing every year in the tens with a ranking in the tens is crazy. It's hard. It's crazy. It's probably the only time it's ever happened outside of, you know, maybe somebody's finished the top 10 all in, um, in the decade, I don't know if anybody's ever finished with their the first digit of their ranking, also being the first digit of the year for ten straight years. <laughs> if you go by the second two digits, no, of the you're year. wrong. I, uh, you're wrong. Uh, it was uh, Rod Laver in the '90s was 90 years old, and he always finished in the '90s. <laughs> he uh, he uh, he had this remarkable consistency and. Um, ability to just sort of chug along that uh you know he also won a title every year in the decade except for one where he got to the paris final um of course all but one of those was a was a 250 and almost all of them were in the united states he he basically you know if the united states didn't have any 250 level tournaments he would have only won three titles (laughs) in his entire career (laughs) So, but he won all of his titles in the decade. Um, he got to five Masters finals. He got to twelve Masters semifinals. In addition to that, he um, uh, did get to a semifinal of a major, and he had t- the two longest matches in tennis history um, in the decade. He, of course, was controversial, and because of his, uh, in part because of his politics, and in part because of his playing style. Um, but he also on court didn't, um, you know, he, he might say he's a little bit bland, but he also never had any like crises, uh, on court that he was part of or, or weird blowups or anything like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was a, he was a solid leader and, and if it weren't for him, then the United States 2010 decade would have been frankly abysmal. He was the thing separating American, at least on the singles level, uh, from 
worse than just about any other major tennis country to, you know, a middling tennis tennis country. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And it's a testament to his consistency, just to the work he puts into his body, because to be that tall and to, you know, he hurt his foot this year, but outside of that, uh, never have a real, I guess 2016 maybe, but not a really serious injury to be able to just stay that healthy. He's got a bunch of fourth rounds to his name. Yeah, I know only the two quarterfinals and the semifinal, but a bunch of fourth rounds at majors, a uh, bunch of quarterfinal, semifinals, finals, and then that title at the Masters 1000 level. He does have wins over a Roger Federer. He does have, you know, a win over a Rafa Nadal. He does have a win, two wins over Novak Djokovic. And there's just not many Americans who can say that. And so, yeah, he was one of those guys who, when he serves lights out, he could compete with anyone. And there were not many Americans who you could say that about this decade. Now, one of the other Americans you could say that about a guy who, uh, one of the most turbulent decades of tennis. I mean, it's age-wise, it's equivalent to Sloane Stevens in that he's a guy who's had his entire career really happen this decade. But talks about ups and downs, the next storyline we have to talk about because you know, Sam Query was great, and I, I, I don't want to diminish his value to American tennis over the past 10 years because he does have that Wimbledon semifinal as well. He did you know, have that streak at the we followed it up with a great U.S. Open performance. He has played some very great tennis, but in the intermediary between the silver generation and these next-gen guys, there were really two guys who had the sort of peak that caught your attention. John Isner, who on any given day, because of his serve, could beat anyone. And then one of the most talented American juniors to come through, a U.S. Open junior singles champion, a two-time Kalamazoo champion, which is not something that happens often. And the only other guy besides Isner and Ronick to win a Masters 1000 title this decade. He's got a couple of Grand Slam titles to his name as well in doubles, an Olympic gold medal in mixed doubles, a bronze medal in the men's doubles as well. That, of course, is Jack Sock, who... Maybe the biggest conundrum in all of American tennis throughout the decade? Yeah. Yeah. Remarkable. Uh, almost almost impossible to really put in a nutshell what, what his career was about. Because, you know, and I spent a lot of time looking through his statistics and noting that he was one of the only players to have his particular number of accomplishments between the Olympics, juniors, uh, singles, doubles, um, he uh, constantly was, uh, you know, and he also had one of the most uh, signature shots of any of any tennis player. His forehand became uh, one of the more astonishing single shots that that uh, that you can when you look back at the history of tennis in, in the 2010s. I would say is one of the top for a while. There was one of the top. 10 most dangerous dominating shots in the game. Um, and uh, he, he, uh, he sort of had a little bit of a, that, like, gotta, gotta see what happens now. Now that wasn't the case at the majors really. And, you know, you make your career at the majors. So um, you've got to sort of, at least in the singles, you got to take that away from him. But um, yeah, he had, he had the weirdest, most unusual, uh, resume of just about any player in that that ten year period, and uh, I just it's almost and he, he also had some really really nasty 
uh, court, you know, times on court. He also had a couple of times on court where he like told people to challenge and that went viral. And uh, he almost became known for his good sportsmanship for a little while because of those uh, high profile things. And, you know, uh, some of his shot making cleaners, uh, you know, the, 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 the razzle dazzle part of it. Um, but then he also, in the last few years, that had some really uh, unfortunate, nasty, negative, negative uh, experiences on court. Yeah, I mean, for Jack, no one can deny the talent, right? I mean, the, the athleticism, the serve, the forehand, the improvisational skills. I mean, the fact that he goes out in Labor Cup after not winning an ATP match, it feels like in six years, and he beats Fabio Fognini, plays as well as he does as a doubles talent. I, You could argue, uh, I mean, no one would argue that he's one of the top doubles talents in the world, but you could argue he is the best doubles player in the world. Um, because he's just, he's that talented. He's that powerful of an athlete. He's just gifted. Some people just, if you've played tennis long enough, you know, those people who just have those God gifted shoulders, who it's just like, they can generate power in ways that normal humans can't. And he's one of them, but 10 years in the jury's out. People know, all right, I'm hitting everything to the backhand side. And yeah, Jack, you're more than welcome to run around it as much as you want, but I'm keeping you in that corner. And the second you hit a slice or the second you hit a forehand that sits a little, I'm opening up the court on you. And just, I know you don't want to play defense. I know you don't, you, I'm, I know Jack Sock does not want to make matches, you know, elongated. He doesn't want them to be physical. He wants them to be short and to the point. And that's not tennis in the 2010s. You know, Jack Sock in the 1990s, when it's big hitting, when it's serving and volleying, a lot of, you know, returns and serves are that much more important. He could have been a sustained top 10 player. And we saw for brief flashes, I mean, that Paris title in 2017, obviously an exception more than the rule, but throughout that year, semifinals at Indian Wells, quarterfinals at the Miami Open, semifinals at the ATP finals that year. He was really, you know, three titles and three finals appearances, 38 and 22 overall. He was really good in 2017. Yeah, he made made the semifinals of the year in championships. And... That was the year, wasn't that the year he came off of? He had early season injury, missed the first part of the year. Um, and But that was also the year that his brother had that really uh, bad health scare. And it seemed to almost like focus him in a way that he hasn't, hasn't been before since on, you know, wanting to make the best of what he had, the skills that he had. Um, and, uh, but, you know, those weren't the, that wasn't the only highlights. I will say he's the only player uh, to be, the only American, he's the only American still born after John Isner in 1985 to have reached the top 10. No other American man has done that. And um, that's not a great sign, but the fact that he did it, even if it was partly that fluke run that where he almost lost in his first match at, at Paris and ended up winning the whole thing, he still did it, you know, fluke or not. Mm-hmm. And I think the one thing you could take is. Every time, no one objects to him being on those Labor Cup teams. He's a yep. must-watch player when he's in that sort of stage, on that sort, you know, at that sort of event. You want him to be there because he rises to those sorts of occasions. Yeah. 
Hope you enjoyed part two of my conversation with Jonathan Kelly, breaking down the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from American tennis in the 2010s. Uh, shockingly, uh, maybe not shockingly, I feel like Jonathan and I average about two hours per podcast. There will be a part three of this conversation. We have some fun. Our superlatives, you know, top 10 list, top 10 players of the decade, our favorite to watch, least favorite to watch, the guys we are or girls we were most irrationally rooting for uh, throughout the time. So be on the lookout for that later in the week. We've also got a lot of other great content going on right now at Cracked Rackets. Our college contender series underway. Today's mini break podcast uh, focuses on our fifth team in the series, number six, Baylor, who will break down their team if they're going to get professional Jensen Brooksby, one of the young stars uh, emerging at the end of this decade on the American side, to come to Baylor, whether he will forego that and go pro. Uh, All of the questions that surround a roster that made the NCAA quarterfinals and won the Big 12 postseason tournament last year. And of course, we will have the chance, as we have with our other college contenders, to talk to the head coach of Baylor, Brian Boland, later in the week as well. So be on the lookout for all of that. Uh, Obviously, you can find all of that content at our website, CrackedRackets.com, on our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube accounts at CrackedRackets for more immediate updates. But another thing we are really excited about at CrackedRackets, we have a new partner, Aerobar. Uh, Aerobar, of course, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, a new uh, performance-based energy bar made for tennis-specific athletes. Uh, you know, whether you're a pro athlete or a weekend warrior, we're all looking for maximum results. You know, we need that fuel to help fuel our bodies up. Without it, you end up like me. You end up behind the mic instead of playing the sport you've loved your whole life because it just turns out you're athletically inadequate, and maybe that comes down to your parents. I mean, look, you look at your parents, and you know they weren't stellar athletes. I mean, for God's sake, your dad wobbles when he walks, and he crouches, and he gets in the turtle position when he runs. And look, I love my mother. She's a workhorse, but no one would call her an athletic marvel. But... With that in mind, you know, so there are so many other factors that harp into athleticism, but maybe if I had been fueled properly, if I had the right sort of energy, if I was eating a bar with more potassium in it than bananas, if I had that opportunity to try that delicious cinnamon, honey, oat, or chocolate chip flavor that Aerobar offers fans uh, everywhere, I mean, maybe I would have been fueled properly. Certainly brand ambassadors like James Blake, John Isner, Michael Russell, Nicole Gibbs, and Steve Johnson uh, have all bought into Aerobar, and we've seen the results they've had. Clearly, they know what they're doing, and if they're willing to do it, you certainly should as well. No one wants to be the kid. Oh, I, I'm bringing out my snack that my mom packed me for this match. No, you don't want to be that kid. You want to come. Yeah, I've got an Aerobar. It looks good. It's easy to eat. I mean, so many times that Gatorade paste, you're like, Bleh. I mean, I love Gatorade, but this is just, it's like a chewy bar. It's something you would eat even if you're not playing tennis. Even if you just want a nice little pick-me-up for breakfast before you start your day, Aerobar is the product for you. And as a offer to our listeners, they've been so kind to provide us a promo code, our first promo code. That's code CRACKED30. You can go to their website, order your first case of Aerobars, get 30% off with that promo code CRACKED30 on the order, you know, given Christmas, Thanksgiving coming up, gifts, meals, all these different things. Save money when you can. Get 30% off off your Aerobar order. And as a way of saying thank you to the listeners for getting involved, they are they have given us the chance to give away a signed John Isner racket. Westoff, give me some sort of Aerobar giveaway sound effect, please. Again, a signed John Isner racket to any listener who's kind enough to post a rating on iTunes, Spotify, wherever they listen to this. Post uh, your name, your username, your social media, and a way for us to find you. Mention that you want to be a part of our John Isner giveaway. Mention the part that you're excited to try Arrow Bars. Even leave something about the podcast. You know, maybe you really enjoy when we have Jonathan. Maybe there's a best of the decade podcast topic you want us to get to. Maybe there's something you don't like. Either way, let us know. 
let us know you want to sign up for this competition. You will be entered as part of the giveaway. And as a bonus, fans who leave a mark not only on this podcast but on the Cracked Interviews, I should say a review on the Cracked Interviews and Mini Break podcast as well, your names will be entered multiple times for each comment you leave. So stack the odds. Look, Hudson Hatfield, we know he's going to be participating. He's in every contest. He right now is the leader in the clubhouse. If this were Vegas, he's a minus 500 to win because I know I can rely on him to leave a review. But the rest of you, where are your reviews at? I mean, come on, get with the program. Get yourself a chance to win this John Isner signed racket. I promise you, you'll have a better chance of hitting aces with a John Isner signed racket than without a John Isner signed racket. So it'll help your tennis game. It'll help your health once you start eating these arrow bars. Everything about you will be feeling good. So go do that. Always have to give a shout out to a man who's always feeling good and makes me feel good. Daniel Westoff, our super producer, as well as Max Ligner, our super producers, I should say, who have a of an editing job to do, as always, and have been killing it week in, week out, day in, day out with the work they do. But for my wonderful co-host, Jonathan Kelly, for our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff, and from our entire teams at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I am your host, Alex Gruskin. Be on the lookout for part three later in the week. Be on the lookout for mini breaks and cracked interviews above. And as always, you know what we say. Hey, great shot. And we will see you all for part three. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.